to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Louis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week is the last of our shows for Marijuana Business Daily's Big Las Vegas Conference, with a mashup of three fascinating but very different guests. Louis and Ann first speak with Max Cherney from Down Jones Market Watch. Max is one of the sharpest journalists covering legal marijuana and is the only Wire reporter who is solely tasked with covering our industry. We also speak with Emily Paxia, co-founder and managing partner of Poseidon Asset Management where she has reviewed thousands of companies in the cannabis industry and has worked with countless founders in many capacities. She's helped to shape entrepreneurs' pitch preparations, their go-to-market strategies and product launches, and advised on day-to-day business operations. Emily has held board seats for three portfolio companies and participates as an advisor to multiple teams. Finally, Lewis and Ann speak with Richard Carlton, CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is the home to the majority of the publicly traded American cannabis companies. 2019 was a tough year in the public markets, and Richard has some fascinating insights into what happened and why, and what 2020 could look like. This is one of those shows where you're not going to want to sit back, so lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Max Cherney, Emily Paxia, and Richard Carlton. And hi. This is year two on Podcast Row. Oh my God, we're so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed right now. Are you Enjoy kidding it. me? Yeah, I'm not, no, so I I'm feel not, good. I, I, well, you, I, I didn't sleep for shit last night, but that's okay. You didn't take a gummy. I did take a gummy, and it kept me up. Really? Yeah. All right. I, 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 you didn't take a, the right gummy. I did not take the right gummy, but that's okay. Um, we're This is the first interview of probably 10 that we're going to be doing over the next two days, and we are starting off with a fucking celebrity. <laughs> a rock star in cannabis journalism, Max Bow Charney. Bow down. Yes. So there are not many wire service reporters who are exclusive to covering the cannabis beat. And we have him, the guy, who is the only wire reporter who literally only covers weed and weed stocks. Max, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Lewis. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> I hope I can live up to this uh, grandiose uh, you know, portrait no that you painted of me. No <laughs> well, pressure. I have no doubt that you will live up to it. So let's jump right in. You've been a journalist for a long time. How did you get into covering cannabis? Uh, so I've been covering uh, weed since um, around 2011, 2012. Um, I, I can't remember exactly when I wrote my first pot story. Um, but I think it was actually about, uh, it was for the San Francisco Examiner. It was about kind of the drug war more generally. Um, that's why I got interested in weed. Uh, as it turns out, uh, covering illegal drugs is pretty complicated uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, Obviously, uh, and I think I think I got pushed into into weed specifically because um, I was researching a story about uh, illegal drug sales in the Bay Area, and uh, through a source, um, I learned of a meeting in Oakland uh, of all the major or a, a number of major drug kingpins in the area. And what they would basically do is they'd get together for dinner every month, and they would divide up all of the drugs that were moving through the port, 
Um, and they would dis decide, like, oh, I can take that Wait, shit. Wait, you I got to sit in on that dinner? No. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, they would decide. They would say, like, I'll, I'll take that amount of molly. I'll take that amount of heroin or, you know, whatever was coming through the port. Uh, an editor um, at a magazine in the area asked me to go to the dinner, at which point I decided there's no fucking way I'm fishes? going to do that uh, <laughs> yes. because I don't want any of them to know who I am. I don't want them to know what I look like. And I realized, like, oh, well, maybe I should find another way to cover the drug war that doesn't involve going to meetings with high-level drug kingpins. <laughs> uh, and so weed was quasi-legal, I guess, in California at the time, so it pre presented an interesting opportunity to uh, to sort of explore a, an area of interest uh, for me. Uh, so that's that's how I got started, uh, and I've been I covered it sort of off and on, very specifically about California. For so I, I, I'm sorry, I've been covering it since then. So, I hope that answers your question. It does. So you, we just did an interview um, with someone, and you said that you're kind of taking a turn, and you're more interested in the U.S. market. Can you talk about a that, little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Canadian LPs, um, as everybody has seen, uh, had a um, I would say a significant advantage over the rest of the world um, in terms of growing and and launching businesses in the sense that they are operating in an environment where there are federal rules uh, and it's there's federal legality for recreational and adult use. Uh, they have access, I mean, arguably they have had access to capital. Uh, it's been difficult for them because even in Canada uh, prior to full legalization last, or, uh, last year, uh, access to, to money was was challenging, um, but it did exist. Hedge funds in Canada were able to invest. Um, high net worth individuals were able to invest. Um, pension funds. Pension funds. I mean, the institutional money was was replete. Uh, that's right. Uh, so they had a massive advantage, um, which it looks like they've squandered for the most part. I hate to say, um, but none. I mean, if you look at if like you look at the investors would agree. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the expectations that they themselves set. Um, they have failed to meet those, and there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, but it's that, not, it's but not that just holds for the fault. U.S. MSOs too, right? I mean, every MSO uh -huh. that went public gave these 2019 projections that were probably two, three, maybe even four times more aggressive than what the revenue that they've actually generated. Uh -huh. Do you think what's happened in Canada is a function of challenged management who doesn't actually know how to grow the product at scale and sell it? Is it a regulatory issue, or is it a capital markets issue? Um, well, I mean, I, I think there's a number of things that are going on at the same time. Uh, the, the lack of retail stores in Ontario is real. Uh, there aren't lineups outside of every pot store in Toronto if you go, but 25 stores is, is, is truly not... Insufficient. Yeah, it's really not enough access to the product if, if, that's, if you want to give people access to it. Um, I, so that, that's definitely true. Uh, Quebec is another example. Uh, there are long lineups outside the, the SD... QC, or I'm sorry if I'm getting the, the acronym wrong, or the, I'm sorry, the, the, the abbreviation wrong, um, right. but the, the, the government-run store is there. Alberta seems like it's done a good job so far, but Alberta's not one of the largest two provinces. Um, so access to retail is a real thing, and the same is true in California. I mean, uh, so uh, those two things are working. Uh, I, I think it has been challenging to grow cannabis at scale. Uh, I, I think that everybody, uh, you were taking essentially what was an illegal product and, and making it into a legal product, and I, I think there's a lot. I don't think anybody really knew how how to grow um, cannabis at the scale that companies like Aurora and Canopy are attempting. Uh, there's also like you know in Canada, there's also uh, 
you know, no legal edible products. There's no legal vape products. There will be. Yeah. There will be. Yeah, absolutely. What's I mean, next the date? December 11th. We're recording this, so yeah, in a couple so, weeks. Yeah, January 1st, right? Yeah. Uh, December 6th. I think December 18th, actually. Oh, is oh, it? Yeah. Okay. That's when they'll be allowed to be sold. Um, I, whether there'll be sh- products on the, will be on the shelf is a different yeah. story. I, yeah, that yeah. I, I can't speak to offhand. Um, so, I mean, if you look for, I, I know a fair bit about California. So if you look at California, the reason I brought up edibles and vapes is because if you look at California sales, um, vape and flower sales have essentially inverted in the past four or five years. Uh, as vapes become more popular, flower becomes less popular. So I think there's a reasonable argument that, you know, people are going to want vape products and Canada doesn't have them. So there, anyways, there's just a number. I mean, those are a few of the many, many reasons why things haven't gone so well. Having said that, I want to give Canada a lot of credit for being a the first industrialized country to legalize adult recreational use a. and b what a. <laughs> and b that you know we're a year in so there's a lot that needs to get worked out for a, for a fledgling industry and I I don't think pointing to Canada and being like oh well it hasn't worked yet is really like a fair assessment of the real of, of what's going to be the reality in ten or fifteen years I I, I can give you one anecdote from Canada. In the 70s, when you went to the liquor store there, you had to buy things from a list. There weren't products on the shelf, and they gave it to you in a brown bag so you couldn't see it, right? I mean, that's liquor. And liquor's been legal around the world forever, practically, aside from a few countries. Uh, and, and, we, and weird years and in the U.S. A, a, a short period of time in the U.S. <laughs> you cover the, the capital market. So I think right? there's. I, I, I'm just yeah. going to say I think there's a long way to go uh, with with legalization in Canada. Anyways, but sticking with Canada for a second. Sure. You know, it's a year now and a couple months since it went full legal, and you can buy flour. And what happened in the capital markets was there was this rush to buy the Canadian LP stocks up until October 17th of last year. And as soon as it went legal and you could actually buy stocks, those, I mean, buy cannabis, uh-huh. those stocks started to tank. Uh-huh. Do you expect to see an uptick with, um, you know, with, with, with the ability of new form factors expanding the markets to more, air, you know, more province, or not more provinces, but more stores opening? Do you think that we'll see a, a somewhat of a rebound in the, the major Canadian LPs? Or do you think that that, that market has played out? Um, th- that's a good question. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, it depends. I, I, I'm loath to predict the future because I, I can't do it. Um, and I've never pretended like I could. Um, but uh, it's... At, the, at this point, investors are looking for results. Uh, so I think when companies start to demonstrate results, I think those, I think the stock prices of those businesses will reflect that. Having said so, uh, realistically, like the valuations that the Canadian companies were enjoying last year weren't plausible. I mean, I mean, there's there's just no way Green Organic Dutchman was ever a nine hundred million dollar company. It's it it can barely sell marijuana. Barely grow it right now. It can barely grow it. That's right. So most, most of them struggle with this, though. Right. I mean, Tilray, Tilray went public at I think seventeen dollars, if memory serves. It was trading at three hundred one intra, trade intraday. One trade though. And fine, but it, I mean, it was enjoying levels above two hundred dollars for for a while. It did a convertible debenture deal at what the strike price is one fifty three or something. I mean, it's trading in the twenties now, right? So Tilray didn't 
say to the market, we think our stock is worth $150, the market said, we think your stock is worth that amount. Yeah. Part of it's, you know, part of it's- you, Same sorry. thing happened with the Kerna, right? Though when the Kerna sure. came out at 11, yeah. it spiked to 70, yep. and then it came right back down, and now it's trading at five, six bucks a share. Yeah, and IPO prices, IPO, the price of a stock after an IPO is typically very choppy and volatile. There's nothing new about that. Um, those valuations were, were extreme, I would say. Um, so to, to return to your question, I just, when I, my point about valuations is that I'm not sure that the Canadian LPs ever deserved, if that, if I can use such a loaded moral word, those those elevated. Um, warranted. What? Maybe warranted. Warranted, yeah. If they ever warranted those kinds of valuations, so I don't know if they can return there. Uh, the Canadian market's relatively small, you know, 38 million people. Uh, so it's you know, I, but I think investors now again are very um, focused on on results, and that's what the LPs have to show. Uh, I think there's going to be, I, I kind of joke with my colleagues that I want to start a death watch blog because I think that's what we're going to start seeing. Uh, our LPs are going to start dying. I ha we haven't seen any sort of blow up quite yet, but some are very close and running out of money. And so. are you thinking to 2020 is going to be the death now for a I think, lot of these companies? I, think, I don't know about a lot of them, but I think we're going to start to, I think some companies are going to go bankrupt. Uh, so, or be a, or their asset, or practically, and they're going to be acquired, their assets are going to get acquired. Yeah, because you can't, in U.S., you your cannabis company cannot go bankrupt. Well, right? there are, there are state laws and well, stuff. They it's, will go through state chancery courts. Yeah, there is no federal bankruptcy That's right. protection. That's right. And given the odd regulatory structure, the cap tables these are strange. Right. The, like you look at the MSOs, they have the holding company, they have managed service agreements, they right. have individual licenses that they hold, and if you know one of these companies r runs out of money. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be an auction of their licenses or their properties. Like, what happens? Well, I mean, I, I would imagine it depends on the specific company, the state it's incorporated in, where it's operating. There's a lot of variables there. And if you look at um, any of the prospectuses of the, of the MSOs, their um, their holding company structures look like they look like Alibaba's, frankly. Like, they're just if you look at a Chinese IPO on the, in the U.S. markets, the, these the, the the corporate structure is 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 it's it's like very it's labyrinthine. It's it's it, they're, they're huge, and they I mean I've posted them on pictures of these things on Twitter because they're so ridiculous looking. So I think it really depends on the company. Um, you know, for investors, like the first people that are going to get their money are the debt holders. That's who's going to get the assets. That I mean, they're first in line always. Uh, so Gotham Green and, and those guys. It, it depends on who's holding the debt. Um, but sh sh stockholders are always the last to to get their you know to get any whatever's left of the company. So yeah. The last couple of months have seen the U.S. Last couple of months, nineteen has been a shit year for U.S. public companies in this space. Right, starting about March, you've seen literally a march down in the share price you know from where they were many of them are down 50 60 70 percent what do you think 2020 is going to hold i i don't know i mean like i said before i i really don't like trying to predict the future uh it, there there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty still um you know federally uh as well as you know at each you know each state um has different issues to work out um I, I think that I think people are looking for things like the SAFE Act uh, to pass or some some change federally. And even even if the state act does go through the Senate, which I think, given the current political climate, is <laughs> they're probably, a little busy. Yeah, so I think, here's, I think here's it's a unlikely. snowball. Yeah. Here's the gates of hell. What chance does a snowball have? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not not so not so great. Uh, and even if it does pass, 
you know, according to sources that are familiar with with banking activity, uh, it's pretty unlikely that there'll be suddenly uh, like Goldman Sachs is not going to just start taking weed money uh, after if the Safe Act passes. It's just it's un it's unlikely that they will do so. They're all looking at it. They're all thinking about it. Um, it's also rel it's also worth considering that you know for the banking industry, weed is still fair a fairly small industry. Like if you look at the combined market cap of the of the sector, and and Lewis, you're exactly right. Like twenty. 19 was a bad year for weed stocks in the U.S. Uh, the S&P 500 is up 24% this year, and all of the major weed ETFs, which I don't love, but they're the best barometer that I've got, are down 30%, 35 40%, which is, which is like, they're literally trading the opposite direction that the but rest the, of the, the economy is. But the weed ETFs is. are very constrained on what they can, they can hold, right? They can't, most of them can't hold CSE, and none of them can hold OTC. So you're, you're, you look at a company like Kush, they can't be in an ETF. Acreage, for the most part, can't be in an ETF. You know, the ETFs are holding the Canadian LPs that are trading on the U.S. exchanges or on the TSX. You know, they're not they're not holding the major MSOs. Well, there, there's a U.S. weed MSO that trades on the NEO. Um, so there are ETFs that, that do. Uh, right. And they're and like I said, they're not perfect. Rep they're not perfect yeah. examples, um, you know, of of the of the you know, they're not perfectly representative. But they're a decent barometer and, and they're still like just not doing great. I mean, and, and so, I mean, I would imagine they're doing worse than the, you know, if you were to aggregate all of the U.S. weed companies in, into an ETF type thing, uh, can't imagine they're doing better than 30, like down 35%. They're probably worse. You know, you got companies like Tilt off 90%. I mean, it, the company went at 525, I think, and is trading in below a dollar. I mean, that's, that's a pretty dramatic haircut. And anybody who owns their stock is going, oh, my God, what the fuck is going to happen now? Well, I mean, if you talk to them, uh, they're trying to turn the business around. So they said they had some management problems last year. Uh, and they say that they're, I mean, for what it's worth, Tilt did post $44 million in Q3 revenue. I mean, it, it's a real business. Uh, Blackbird and Baker, uh, those two technology sides, they're real companies. They, I mean, they have operations in California. I've seen them at trade shows. You know, it's, it is a real business that the... the, the, the Head scratcher is, is why it makes sense as a combined entity, um, and we'll see. What are you looking forward to at the show? That's a very good question. Uh, I've never been, so um, I'm looking forward to ex just experiencing it for the first time. Uh, there's, you know, I'm I'm not an old guy. I'm 38, um, but uh, firsts are always exciting, and and I'm get I'm 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 excited to meet. A lot of the people who I've spoken with, I'm, a, I'm excited to see old friends. I'm, some of my personal friends are here, so I'm excited to spend time with them and, and in, in this in, in this environment. How do um, you like navigate this? So normally you go to a trade show as a reporter in the space. How are you navigating the space? How are you like? Are you walking through and just seeing what comes to you and what you find of interest, or are you you know you there's very specific people you want to meet with. You're making the time for them. Like how are you kind of navigating all that? Well, as I as I said a few times, um, you know, in, in my time here so far in, in Vegas so far, um, you know, Mark, I'm trying to pivot our coverage a little bit more towards the U.S. So, uh, I think as a result, I've I'm taking meetings with executives from, you know, the U.S. multi-state operators uh, to you know meet face to face. Um, I, I I've done a fair bit of planning, but you know, I'm hoping maybe some serendipitous stuff will happen over the course of the next few days um and i've never i at this point i've still never even seen the trade show floor so i'm gonna have <laughs> to go walk to around early. it at yes. some point 
<laughs> he's, st- he's still a, a trade show floor virgin. You have, yeah, you've prevented me. I'm just looking at it right now. It's like it's I right can there. see it. It's, it's right there. there. He's literally salivating. Just <laughs> <laughs> you've been covering this space now, I mean, a long time, since since 11. What is the, the one, what is the biggest, the most underreported story in mm. cannabis? What's the story that you either you want to write or you want to see somebody write? I mean, I think I think that's a, a really good question. Uh, I think there's that's I, I, three, by the way. All three right, really good. All no, right. no, no, you had one and I had two. It's good. Well, that's what PR people what? tell the uh, interviewee to say to no, the reporter. Actually, no, we say no. Never don't say, say that. that. Oh, really? It's yeah. their I've job heard, to have good questions. I've heard you that was I've heard that was uh, a thing that no. some some people not, not you guys. Oh, no, no, you. It's Other your job people. to ask good questions. Yeah, and you do. Fun fact about PR. Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you guys didn't teach that. I've definitely seen that in no, training we do not material teach that. before. Um, a- anyways, uh, I, I mean, I think that there's, I, I don't really think there's one one story that hasn't been covered enough or, or I would like to go cover. Um, I think that there's a lot of smaller pieces um, right now that are that are going uncovered and a lot of a, a lot of activity that's going unreported on because there just aren't enough people in the cannabis press corps that are looking and I'm speaking very specifically about business coverage uh, about business coverage uh, there's there's companies that are doing things that are either s- too small to, that that are just not they're not enough readers frankly to, to and I only have so many hours in a day to, to report on um, lazy I know it's it really is it is primarily laziness uh, uh, <laughs> and um, but having said that, you know, there is some excellent reporting in, in the in the weed trade journals. Um, you know, I think Leafly just published a story. I'll plug David Downs as uh, he put a put up a. Oh, I'm sorry, David Bienensock just posted a, a like a five part series on on patenting uh, plant genetics, um, which you know that's an important you know intellectual property is a huge part of the business. Uh, you know, uh, I think it, I don't remember which uh, outlet it was, but uh, last year when California started to test uh, stuff for heavy metals, um, there was some reporting around lead in vape cartridges. You know, those things are. You yeah, C Cell C Cell had a, a, a tough moment there. It did, yeah, it did. I mean, especially with the vape stuff that's going on right now. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, I, yeah, like I said, I think there's a lot of uh, what I would call smaller, like thematically. I, I don't think that I, I'm I'm not seeing any you know massive coverage holes. Um, but but there are a lot of sort of smaller stories that I think are just being untold. Uh, also, like I, you know, as far as something I would like to do personally is is synthesize what has happened and write sort of like explain what has happened because I, I I don't think that anybody has really successfully done that so far. Like this is how we've got to where we're at right now, or like what happened last year. You know, like how did <laughs> I I don't know if anybody's even written the story. Like how the fuck did Canada legalize pot? Like why did that happen? Uh, that would be a good story, you know. And I mean, there's there's a I, 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 there's a I, I, lot I, I, of great characters in Canada too. That's the oh thing is God. like when you're in any time a business is, and this will happen. This is happening or will happen in the states. I mean, as well. Like if you if you talk to Hadley Ford, one of your clients, um, he'll say or he has said that you know you need three types of people to run a successful weed business. You need like the uh, MBA type person, the manager. Uh, you need the agriculture person, the, the, the person who understands that side, and then you need somebody from the illegal business, right? Because that's a because like, it's institutional knowledge. It's for institutional the, yeah. knowledge, and I mean, I think that's one. I think that's one of the mistakes that cannabis companies have made is they're trying to shove off the image of the of the what they stoner. see as a stoner, right? But that's actually your best consumer. Like they're an, an I, stoner is probably not the best word, but enthusiast or whatever you want to say. But that's the person who's the most interested in the product. 
and aside from medical patients, obviously. Well, it's uh, 2080, so. right? 20% of the patients, 20% uh, of the people who walk into a dispensary are buying 80% of the product right now. It is, that. yeah, that's, that's, it's literally, that's what it is. Um, and these are people who are, you know, buying on a weekly basis, a couple hundred bucks worth of product, whether it be, le you know, flour um, or, or alternative forms. The industry has bet on the soccer mom, you know, the Chardonnay mom who's vaping, who, who will vape to come in. And they haven't yet. You know, it's still the historic consumer who is used to buying the dime bag, you know, in, in the Ziploc from their buddy who have now said, all right, I'll just walk into a store and have a better selection. I, I mean, I think that's a gross oversimplification of the illegal market. I think that um, often I've heard weed executives talk about how unsophisticated the illicit market is. And they, again, grossly misunderstand what is actually happening. I mean, if you've ever bought weed illegally in California, it's not some guy in it from a dime bag. You're buying it from a friend who grows it yeah. or somebody who knows somebody who grows it. Like it's, and that's a trusted supply chain. Like the, what they're trying to displace is actually very complicated. And, and, to, and, and to say, that, well, there's no brands and there's no whatever, is, it's just like, it really, yeah, there's no Coca-Cola, fine. But there definitely are, there are trust relationships and there are, uh, it's it's going to be like I said. I th I think I think weed companies, uh, the ones that don't have that institutional knowledge of the illicit market, I think are not going to understand or grasp what they need to do to be successful because the illic illegal market is still massive Rampant. in California, in Canada. It's three times the size in California, right? I, I have no I, I have no idea how anybody measures an illegal business, so I think they're all just guesses to be honest with you. Yeah. But um, but it is it's it's significant. I I, I know. Through sources, I know people who. I mean, I I know people who buy it from the illegal market. I know people who are participating participating in it. I mean, it's it's big and it's has it's not going away so far. If but if I am the CEO of a public MSO, how can I knowingly hire somebody who is a criminal? I mean, that's not really something I can talk no, I'm, about. I'm, I have I'm, no idea. <laughs> right? No, but, but, but I understand what you're saying that you have to have well, a criminal, but a criminal under laws that are changing. I got it, and, and I, I, right. personally, I, mean, I agree. And I, but my personal feelings don't matter here. I have a, I have a uh, both a fiduciary and a legal responsibility to not knowingly do something that's illegal, right? So I mean, that's that's like a technical question that I would yeah. refer to the lawyers. I would say find the good person and then deal with the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that you know, management is is the most is is critical. And if you need, if somebody who you need to hire and trust and you need to hire has gone to jail or been arrested for marijuana related offenses, then so be it. I mean, I, I think that's part of the reality of doing business in the industry at this point. I mean, weed is illegal federally. If the, if a FBI agent walked in here, they could start arresting people if they wanted to. That's the reality. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen because like, come on, look around. Like yeah, that's 30,000 people here. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> right. But that but that could they could be prosecuted. They absolutely Wait, who could are those be charged. Guys with the helmets over there. <laughs> um, I have to go. Uh, so <laughs> Max Charney, it's been great. Talking yeah, to you. Okay, okay, that's great. Uh, have a great enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, Max, honestly, thank you for being so generous with your time. A pleasure. A um, pleasure if you guys aren't reading Market Watch, you're missing out. You yeah. should definitely yeah. read it. Yeah. He is truly the, the, the best Breaking journalist news all the time. who is covering this from a financial space. Um, so thank you so much for your time, man. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And we are joined by Emily Paxia from Poseidon Capital. Um, Welcome. Emily thank you. is 
one of the smartest, most accomplished um, venture investors in the space. And also, um, with a name like Emily, we can also assume that you are a woman, and you <laughs> clearly are. There are not very many women mm -mm. on the venture side um, in any type of venture capital role, and specifically in cannabis. That's true. How did you get into the space? Um, I always say we had a two aspect entry into the space. The first is that I think we were very compassionate and open to the idea of medicinal marijuana because my brother and I co-founded the company. We lost both of our parents to cancer starting in 1996. And when you go through something like that, you see all of the issues that exist in our healthcare system as they are today and what it means to go through all of those ravaging treatments that really tear the body apart. And it was a hospice nurse that off the cuff made a comment when he was so, so sick that maybe, you know, cannabis could have been a thing. That was 1996. Definitely not a popular thesis. And I think it just gave us a really open mind around taking this more seriously than other people. And then the other side to that was it's just clear opportunity space to participate. So those were the two things that got us in. We just feel like this is a generation of, or the opportunity of a generation. And, you know, I always say that the th there's, it's not been easy investing in this space, but <laughs> by any stretch, but if I woke up today and saw someone else doing what we could have done, I would never, the, my whole life would be ruined from here on forward. So I had to do it. It felt like com compelled to do it. And you got into business with your brother, Morgan. I did. How, uh, <laughs> family how is tough. Yes. Yeah, I mean, how, how has that been? You guys have been successful, but yes. you know, how, what are you good at? What is he good at? Like, how do you complement each other? It's a great question. I think that we share a lot of ways that we think about things, but we also approach it very differently, which gives us a lot of complimentary support to one another. Getting into business with my brother, we came from a family business. Our dad had a real estate business and our mother got her real estate license and was also an accountant. So she really, I mean, they worked really well together. And so I think for us, it was a model of how you work together. We also grew up sailing together and sailing. You can face many really sketchy and scary situations out on the water. And I think you learn trust and, and what it means to be in a crisis situation together. And not to say that investing, you find yourself in crisis situations, but you find yourself certainly in challenging situations. So it, we knew this industry was going to be, it was very early when we got in, tw I think it's 2013 when we're doing this. And we knew that we had to be in a group of people who could just trust each other implicitly. And I think that it served us very well. And so he's extraordinarily good at the details and digging in once we're into a deal. Um, I would say that I am kind of more on the big picture side of things, although he's an incredible big picture thinker too. Um, I think that he's just very good at focusing in on those things and he has, an acumen for math and for financial structuring that I don't see in many other people. I have so much respect for him and I always say I've learned so much from him, so much more than many other people. You invest other people's money. We do. Talk about the very first check that you got. Can you take us back to the story? Um, and if you can na t name a name, name the names. If you can't, just tell the story of getting that very first check. So the very first outside, we were the very first investors in our own fund, and we continue to invest in our funds. Well, that I doesn't say. count. No, but <laughs> I, I feel it's important because some, I don't think that's always the case. But our very first investor, I still have the voicemail from when he <laughs> really? said he was going to come in. So our first investors were really um, lawyers and people who really understood the real versus the kind of 
externally facing appearing risks, I would say, that are the perceived risks of the industry. So our first investor, um, he's actually from New Orleans, which I also found very amazing because New Orleans is not necessarily mm. a ca cannabis Louisiana capital. is not a friendly yeah. cannabis state. Yeah. Right? And Ish. so, not really. Yeah, I mean, Ish. we know you can find it in the jazz clubs, and well, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but so, I can't, I don't, I, we can't really say the names of our investors, but I will say that I saved that voicemail. I remember exactly where I was sitting. We were on our way actually on a diligence trip and I was in the backseat of the car and I remember listening to the voicemail and just being like, all right, here we go. How much money have you deployed to date? How much have we deployed? Actually, you know what? I don't have that number off the top of my head at this particular moment because we've got Ballpark some. Ballpark it. Probably a hundred million. And you're and you're raising for a third fund, with second fund. Second fund. Yeah. Okay. Seventy-five million. Seventy-five to a hundred. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How close are you? We are above. We're about fifty-five right now. Okay. And we haven't. We have another close coming, so it'll go up from there. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's it, this year's been a tough year in sure. the capital markets, um, and and you are competing now with. There are a lot of other funds out there. Sure. How do you differentiate yourself from the other funds? Because, you know, Merit is raising money. Entourage is raising money. You guys are raising money. Yes, I said your competitors' names. I know. That's okay. Um, I love them. I, and, well, and it room is. It is. It, there's room for everybody. Yes. You know, it's not like you guys. You yeah. all do similar deals. You'll do deals together. Right. You'll do deals alone. Right. But when you're talking to a potential LP, mm -hmm. what's the differentiator for Poseidon versus, you know, Mitch? So, I mean, first of all, we're the best. No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'll start with this. I think that uh, we have been managing an actual fund for the longest time in this industry of, of most of the names that you just mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, other people have been investing one-off into the in industry, but it's a little bit different when you're managing a diversified portfolio of companies and thinking about the synergies, the exits, all of the different structuring that you're looking at for doing all of that and putting that together in a really mindful way. Um, so for us, it's, it's time and market is definitely a differentiator. We also, during that time, the first thing we identified was that there was a very real lack of data that was being gathered. I mean, there were there were big surveys that were kind of coming out annually. We knew that if we became a warehouse for data for our own inputs of information, that that would serve us incredibly well. And so that's one of the things we've done from the beginning. And the amount we're about to put out a white paper about the cycles we've observed over Ooh. the last six years Ooh. and what we predict. I'd like to read it. I, it's coming soon. And so actually probably before the end of the year, because it also has to do with our predictions for 2020. And so I don't think anyone else has that level of data on this industry because the inputs we have are so bespoke. I mean, it's what's what coming are the into inputs? it. It's literally inbound inquiries from companies where we're tracking. We're almost like doing an angel list or a pitch book in our own back office of deal flow that we're seeing, structures of deal flow, valuations, rounds that are closing, who's leading what, um, all of that, all of that information, multiples, how we're determining our valuation comps. I mean, it's just endless. But also, we've been able to, Morgan's been brilliantly been able to overlay some of the public market activity from what we're seeing on the private. So it's, and the, and the amount of capital that ebbs and flows within the industry for, in Canada versus the U.S. I mean, it's a lot of information that we have. And we really try to drive our own insights out of that, not just have it. So it's really Are incredible. you finding it? I mean, companies need cash, right? Like capital is so hard oh to come gosh. by. So does yeah. that make your job easier or does it make it harder because now you're getting an influx of people 
companies maybe that didn't need as much before or yeah does it make your job harder or easier it always cuts both ways when the capital is flowing or retreating you know we saw capital run to the sidelines in the beginning of 2018 when jeff sessions rescinded the call memo and that's when we saw all of those companies go to canada for the rto process that was challenging in its own sense because it's like now we're changing the whole dynamic and velocity of how capital is flowing and the expectations around liquidity now we're seeing a serious drawback of capital because I actually, one of my friends just sized the market. He's at a, um, an investment bank up in Toronto. The capital market where it was at the end of September was the same size as, the capital market where it was in, in September was the same size as Canopy Gross market cap in April. Wow. The whole capital market. So it literally wow. compressed that much over that four month drawdown and, or three month drawdown but the thing and then the vape crisis kicked it in the teeth so capital is out people are starving for resources and a lot of people were spending pretty carelessly so we're seeing a great washout right now it's going to be an interesting reset time for sure are you guys only private investors or are you also investing in the public markets as well fund one has had an allocation in the publics of up to 20 percent roughly and morgan does run a bit of a long short strategy on some of that kind of intraday or intra week but we in the late spring we actually saw that the headwinds were increasing so we took that position size way way down we're like under nine percent in the publics now which has served us very well we're only in our long long names on that right now um can you on name any names i mean i love gti <laughs> i'll say that all day long those i love those guys i've known them for years before they went public so that's i think they're just ben, really ben is ben is great ben is great anthony i love all of that team they're amazing jen um but then i also um the second fund is pure private. It's a VC structure. Think like Sequoia Capital or A16. That's where we're sitting in that with that approach. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned a white paper coming out and talking about 2020. Can you give us a little insight, maybe, what you're hoping to see in 2020? Yes, go, or no, go what you McLaugh think? Go McLaughlin Group on this. predictions. <laughs> predictions Issue for 2020. Um, I actually think we're about to see some of the best companies emerging from the industry at this time. I think this is where we're going to see the great separation. Yep. I'm gonna, I believe we're about to see real teams who have real fundamentals focused on the long vision of this industry. The fast money is, is washing out the backside of this. And I think what we're going to see are the companies that will be the ones that truly IPO on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange coming out of 2020. I don't think it'll happen in 2020, but these are the names that are going to be to watch. All right, again. Can you, uh, if you can, yeah. name names. I'm going to name names. All right. Um, and I'm talking my book here. Okay. All right. That's fine. <laughs> um, obviously, Headset, Flow Hub. Um, I think that Spark, which not a lot of people know, which is a single state operator in California, killing it quietly, but doing a beautiful job. Um, I think operators like that who've been running for 10 years, who know how to run a lean business and now are able to capitalize on the challenges of this market and really hit the accelerator. Those are the types of companies that are going to kill it. You know, you talk about Spark as a single state operator, which I, I believe gives them a an actually a competitive advantage over the MSOs because their CapEx costs are significantly lower. You don't have to build out a grow in 10 states, processing in 10 states, dispensaries in 10 states. Do you think that that arbitrage is going to enable spark when they do go public to go turn around and maybe snap up 
some of the other MSOs because they know how to run lean and mean, and then they will have capital that the other smaller MSOs might not have access to. You know, it may very well flip around to be that way. And it's funny. It's a really interesting observation, Lewis, because I feel like everybody was like, okay, it's going to be the MSOs or the absolute consolidators. And I do think a couple of those names will be because they've operated pretty well in this. But I do think that there is a depth to the single state operator. And and you're getting right to the point, which is the operational efficiencies of that. That's one of the things with, with the questions of what's happening in the capital markets. Yes, it's the time to scale and the time to grow. But if if capital should retreat, can you flip into cash flow positive mode? And that's really important to us. I, there's a company that we work with called Redbird, which uh -huh. is out of Oklahoma. There you They're go. They're in the same, like who knew? Oklahoma, I fastest growing. I that market. It's yeah. unbelievable, right? Yeah, we have a lab eight, testing there. Eight, yeah. eight million people live in Oklahoma. Yeah. 400,000, 5% of the entire state is now has a card and they have reciprocity. So I look at Redbird and say, these guys are self-funded. They have almost no desire to go public, right? They have access to low cost capital themselves, right? and they have a way to get into Texas. This is a company that is positioned to become really big. Yep. You know, I, I think that the, you know, we have worked with other single state operators in California. We worked with a single state operator, which is now expanded out of Oregon. You know, yeah. These are company, you know, companies that are yeah. smart. They, they they're staying small intentionally. Correct. Big, you know, they're big, small, right? Yeah. Big in Oregon, big in California, but they're not in Illinois and they're not in Arkansas, right? They're just in the states that they need to be in. That's right. That's right. And I think that another thing coming out of this, this time of exuberance is focus being really focused um, and being and staying core. Like if, if that license is just too much money and the ROI on it is going to be impossible to achieve, don't do it. And I think that that's something we'll see a lot of because we saw a lot of investing a lot of capital into licenses and then the state regulations changed, opened up more licenses and the value went right off a cliff. So I think there's something to that, that focus, yeah. What other states do you like? Or what uh, states about are countries that I like? Or yeah, countries. countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I went to the Web Summit this year, which was awesome, and they're very interested in cannabis, which is neat because it's a ma it's a seventy seven hundred. It was it was huge, 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 huge. Seventy thousand people in a seven hundred thousand person city. Oh so God. all of a sudden, you're taking over like ten percent. <laughs> um, that, but anyway, the point we, being, we saw the pictures online. By oh, the way. I know. To hear and I had some fun, but so <laughs> we I got to go and see Northern Swans, which is now called Clever Leaves Operation in Portugal, which is client incredible. of KCSAs. That's a client of K. I love love Clever Leaves, so but so I'm very bullish on markets like Colombia, Mexico, uh, Portugal, who are yep. basically going to be a part of this whole supply chain globally speaking, and I'm really interested in seeing how that infrastructure is developed. What about Greece? What do you think about? Have you looked at Greece? I have. So I get a lot of inbound inquiries from Greece. Truth be told, I have to spend some time understanding it. I mean, Greece is the motherland of our namesake, so I think that Poseidon needs. And it's going to be a yeah. real, you know, burden to go and check out it, Greece, right? It will be. It will <laughs> <Yes>. be. <laughs> Santorini, uh, you don't want to go there. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You know. No, I think it, it could be interesting. I'm thinking about it. One of our investments does have a um, distribution relationship through Greece, and so I think there could be some interesting things there. How many companies have you invested in, and who is the one company that you want to try out and say, we were so right. These guys are killing it. <laughs> okay, so we've invested in over 50 over the lifetime of the fund. We've done over 100 rounds of investment so many follow-ons. 
Okay, so I get, you know, honestly. You love all your children. I love all of my children. I'd say the one that like, because I, okay, so in 2014, I was on a panel, I'll never forget, and someone said, what is the thing in the sector that you think is missing that you're waiting for a company to come along for? And I said, data. And along came my boys at Headset, um, the guys who founded Leafly, spun out, Cy, Scott, and Brian, spun out of that and moved on to build Headset. And when they came to us and pitched us the idea, I've never so quickly been like done. Like I, Take yes, money. this is yeah. all the things that I'm looking for, true tech and data analytics. Oh. I know. And, and for me as an investor, it's been an incredible resource because the information I'm getting from this, so it's a virtuous cycle of having invested in them. Um, and I just love the way that they're developing. But at the time, it was not necessarily a popular thesis because people were like, oh, data, wa people won't want to have data in this industry. And I was like, <laughs> what? You're right. Nobody wants yeah. to know really what's going on. <laughs> but it was one of those moments when everybody was talking about all these other things. And I said, data. And I... I was like, yay, finally I got something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I said it out loud on a panel, so it's registered. But yeah, nice. that's my baby. Yeah, one of them. One of my many babies that I love and adore. What are you looking most forward, and we'll wrap it up with this. What yeah. are you looking most forward to at the, the convention, which you haven't even stepped foot into <laughs> yet? <laughs> okay, so when we first started coming to MJ BizCon, there were 800 people. So every 30, year, 35,000 this year, 35,000. Mm. So every year I walk the convention floor, even if I can only make it through 20% of it, because usually I run into so many people and I, I love this industry so, so much. So I, but every year I have to get on the convention floor because for me, it's the most tangible development that you can see this industry has truly flourished over six years of doing this. It has exponentially grown and I see it as a leading indicator personally is like, and so I walk the floor and I look at the, to see what's trending, what's hot and new and, and also to just see how far these booths and these companies have gone. I actually get kind of choked up when it happens because it all kind of gels for me what we've been building this whole time. So I'm excited well, for Emily, it. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to want to have you back and do a full hour with us. Great. Um, Love it. And we'll let you know. Thank cool. you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thanks. Yes, we have a surprise guest, uh, Richard Carlton. Return guest. Third time. Third time? Is third, it time. third time? Third time. Wow. Third time's a charm. Excellent. We'll just call so, you Trey. Yeah, exactly. So Trey is the CEO <laughs> we won't of do that. The, Sorry. the Canadian Securities Exchange uh, or the Cannabis Stock Exchange. Um, and the last time we talked, you know, the world was a very different place financially, especially for the publicly listed cannabis uh, companies. What do you see 2020 holding from a, a public markets perspective? I think we've seen some really interesting trends develop just in the last uh, few weeks. Um, there's been, I think, a breakdown in the correlations um, in the sector. So what I mean by that is that the companies all tended to trade more or less within the same range, whether they're Canadian LPs, uh, US MSOs, or what have you. And uh, with the uh, third quarter results being uh, reported by the Canadian LPs in particular, and uh, obviously very trying circumstances for the Canadian LPs because of the retail bottlenecks uh, in, in Canada. Um, obviously the reports were, were quite negative and uh, the stocks of course uh, uh, reacted accordingly. The US MSOs on the other hand by and large have been hitting their benchmarks and uh, things are certainly very encouraging uh, in terms of their revenue trajectory, EBITDA yeah, growth. Punished. Well actually no, not since uh, sort of two to three weeks ago. That trend has actually reversed itself. So yeah, I mean, on a year over year basis, down 50, 60, 70%, that's true. But as I say, I think we've seen a uh, reversal of that uh, long-term cycle 
uh, really just within the last uh, two, three weeks. So we saw the bottom. I'm not ready to call it uh, <laughs> like, you know, ding, 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 there, okay. the bell went off, it's the bottom because uh, there's a little bit of, um, again, the smarter guys in the sector than me tell me that there may be a little more tax selling and portfolio right. trimming and yeah, so Lewis on. Yeah, Lewis called the bottom at towards, December 31st. Towards said, the end yeah, of the year. December 31st is where I think the bottom is because of tax loss selling. But I think we can see it from here. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, the really encouraging sign is that uh, the, co the companies are actually trading way more on the fundamentals than the hype. And uh, I think that's an important sign of maturity for the sector and uh, something that uh, I hope and expect to see in uh, 2020. Do you think retail investors are starting to understand that or do you think they're not? I, I realize that Canadian retail investors have gotten a bit of a bad rap yeah. uh, through this whole thing. Um, and uh, look, it's still principally a Canadian retail investor game. And uh, you are seeing, as I say, the correlations breakdown, which indicates people are in fact beginning to uh, trade uh, many of these names on the fundamentals as opposed to the hype. You know, we have 2020 is a, a, a another pivotal, I mean, every year is a pivotal year in the industry, but you're going to see big states, new big states come online. Illinois, Michigan, Maine will finally start to have adult use. It's not a big state, but Maine will have adult use, finally have stores open. We should see an acceleration of stores opening up in Massachusetts, and this is going to start to show through in the earnings of the U.S. MSOs. Um, probably not until the second half of the year. Is that when you think that we're going to see another rapid acceleration in, in shares, or do you think it's going to be a slow, steady climb? You know, I know you can't predict the future, but <laughs> but if you well, could, as I say, if I could, I'd have another job, yeah. right? <laughs> and you wouldn't have ever you wouldn't heard be of me schlepping it yeah. with us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I'd be living in that penthouse in the top of the, exactly. uh, the, the cosmopolitan. And you didn't know whatever. us, Richard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but do you think it's really that we should start in the second half, like June, July, we'll start to see a, a, a more rapid acceleration in, in the stocks? Um, that's a plausible scenario. As you say, I, I obviously not smart enough or insightful enough to know, you know, when uh, the trajectory is likely to pick up. Uh, I do say that, um, um, again, the fundamentals for many of the U.S. MSOs are very impressive. And as you say, with the uh, continued liberalization uh, of, uh, of policies in a variety of states and, uh, again, the opening up of more retail opportunities in the states that are already legal for uh, recreational use, uh, obviously can only benefit, uh, the, the, in effect, the good operators. You, you've seen a slowdown in listings this year. No, we haven't. All right, well oh. then correct me, please. I, I like being wrong. Lewis is spreading rumors. I live life wrong, so go ahead, so, <laughs> so correct me. Yeah, so uh, in point of fact, we are likely to exceed the number of listings on the Canadian security, new listings on the Canadian Securities Exchange uh, this year over last. Um, the difference is, of course, is, is size. So that instead of seeing uh, you know, the significant US MSOs, for example, come in with valuations uh, on the enterprise side in the billions, uh, what we're seeing now is a move to companies from South America, Israel, Caribbean Basin. Uh, we have two Asian companies. Um, our first German company listed uh, a few weeks back. So combined with uh, a resurgence, and I appreciate you guys don't care about this, but in the junior mining space, in particular gold exploration, we do care. Um, means that uh, uh, we've actually got a very, very healthy pipeline. Um, considerable number of listed companies uh, come to the market uh, so far this year. But obviously, you know, the headline number in terms of market cap is much smaller than it uh, uh, was for 2018. Do you think the, um, the massive values that the cannabis companies brought in and the attention they brought to the exchange has helped that pipeline? Or are, has, has it helped or has it made non-cannabis companies reticent to look at the CSE? 
No, I, I think it has had a very positive uh, knock-on effect uh, across all of the sectors. Um, we've been able to open relationships with investment banks in Canada and the United States in particular, but uh, also, as I mentioned, uh, from uh, places uh, from around the world. And uh, that's given us an opportunity to work with them on uh, different uh, industry sectors. Uh, E-gaming is uh, going to be an interesting one. Uh, we've had a few e-gaming uh, companies uh, list. Um, it's a, an interesting sector in that it may not be obvious what the investment uh, thesis is to get ahead of what I think is going to be a very, very important industry uh, in the coming years, already is obviously. Um, but uh, we, we're seeing a lot of investor interest in some companies uh, coming from that uh, space. The Canadian um, institutional investment community has really kind of leapt to the fore in bringing capital to the cannabis market. Um, and there are questions about efficacy, ethics, um, the way they do business. You know, do you see the, the increased attention that the cannabis you know, markets have brought to the, the big Canadian investment banks changing their behaviors, or are they still going to continue to behave like they did with the minerals and mining space, which has been a little bit more cowboyish? Well, I think this is uh, in part a, a Canada-US cultural clash, uh, because- Yes, because uh, the shirt you're wearing, <laughs> I would not wear. <laughs> Which is beautiful. I love it. I it's mean, totally a lumberjack shirt. Is this there's one of the ones that looks suit, good on you? Exactly. And then there's a flannel. There's yeah, a lot going on. You've got the red and black check yeah. flannel shirt and the green tie. So I got to tell know. you, there is literally nothing more satisfying than splitting wood. There really <laughs> isn't. It is. And I've had, and uh, you know, this is. Uh, I guess this is not a family show, but I've had women explain to me that there's nothing sexier than a man with an axe splitting wood. So, so there you go. Okay, Melissa, you hear that? I'm getting an axe. Dear Stephen. <laughs> Get an axe. That's right. Just in time for Christmas, folks. <laughs> exactly. Stephen, your Hanukkah present is an axe. It's an axe. <laughs> I couldn't fit it in the stocking. <laughs> but uh, uh, where, where were we, so by the, the way? So yeah, the difference yeah. in, in, so, in the So Canadian, I think it is, um, a, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a cultural thing in that, um, you know, some of the trading activity that uh, is, uh, you know, has been impugned from certain quarters in the United States uh, is entirely legal. Uh, in the, under the Canadian securities legislation. Um, it's different than the U.S. regulations in that some of the trades, some of the financing uh, techniques and so on would not in fact be permissible under the 33 Act. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's fair to say that there is going to be some commentary. Uh, I know that uh, the Wall Street Journal and Barron's are uh, likely to come up with some stories before the end of the year uh, on, these, uh, on these differences. But, uh, you know, obviously I take it from the positive viewpoint is that uh, the Canadian uh, investment industry, um, without the banks involved, uh, was able to capitalize the industry in Canada and the United States. And uh, I think it's an incredible in achievement uh, when you think about it from a public markets perspective because, you know, you don't have to go very far to see uh, articles with various folks talking about the death of capital formation in the public markets. Well hey, it, it isn't dead. In fact, uh, the Canadian market uh, stepped up and uh, filled a, net, uh, thank a need you. for capital. Legitimately, this is not a bullshit. This is thank you. Because you know we're standing here at the MJ BizCon. There's 35,000 people walking through 250,000 square feet of trade show floor. And were it not literally for you, a lot of this would not be here. So you know whatever anybody says about the Canadian investment market, this industry is dependent upon you, and and I, you know, thank you. 
Well, I'm not going to lie. I haven't had to buy too many drinks in Vegas this week. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say not too many, I mean none. <laughs> how about how about joints or edibles? Uh, sorry, did, uh, did, I didn't hear you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's legal here, and it's legal in Canada, so it may not. Yeah, be. but my mother might be listening. Okay. <laughs> um, so l last question, then we'll, we'll you've been generous with your time. We're standing here a year from now, right? It's now the end of 2020. Looking back on 2020, what was the thing that most surprised you? Well, I think from the. I mean, this isn't obviously going to be a surprise, but. I mean, there will obviously be some significant workout transactions that get done this year. As in, you know, with the US MSOs, I think we've seen who the management teams are that have, uh, uh, you know, kept some capital on the sidelines uh, because this is going to be a war of cost, of capital cost. Um, and uh, we'll probably see that first, at least one where, uh, without reference to US bankruptcy law, um, you know, major workouts are going to have to get done. Um, and so they'll be done by private contract, uh, which will be interesting, maybe messy. Um, but I think uh, standing a year from now, let's put it this way, I would be surprised if we weren't standing here going, you know what, that was a fantastic year. The industry is so much healthier and in a better position uh, than where it was in uh, uh, December 2019 and uh, is much more accepted. The product development has been uh, proceeded to pace. Um, you know, again, 2021, I think, is actually the one where things may get a little strange. Uh, Why? Because with the, uh, again, you know, Richard Carlton noted observer of the U.S. political scene <laughs> <laughs> from our perch in Toronto. Uh, you know, we're on a clear day. We can see New York State. So, uh, uh, but... Uh, I can see Russia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We can actually see Buffalo from our house. But... Uh, which isn't really a boast, but you know that's what I'm. That's where I'm coming <laughs> I mean, from. We love. That's okay. We love Phil Carl Carlson, who is from Buffalo. So, Go yeah. Bills. Go, ugh, please no. <laughs> so, so you were saying, but, but after but the I election, think, uh, yeah. I mean, again, it, it's uh, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty there. We could wind up with uh, uh, with a House and a Senate controlled by the Democrats, and uh, a wounded Mr. Trump in the White House, and uh, you know that's going to be interesting. Uh, clearly, the House. Uh, or sorry, the, the Senate Republicans are not motivated at the moment to do any favors for the Senate Democrats. Uh, so I think legislative uh, uh, initiatives, however worthy uh, between now and then, not likely to, uh, to get any traction. So uh, uh, maybe, maybe that's the surprise. Maybe something will happen, uh, whether it's on the banking side or otherwise, uh, to uh, uh, alleviate a lot of the pain. Uh, that uh, the participants in the industry in the United States are suffering. So I certainly hope that's the case. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, have a great show. As always, my pleasure. Third time's a charm. Our thanks to Max Charney, Emily Paxia, and Richard Carlton. Boy, MJ Biz was one hell of a ride this year. And as always, thank you for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Or you can always drop us an email at a lot of ats, greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback, guest ideas, and don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. On behalf of Ann, Nick, myself, and Shay, we really do appreciate you listening all the way through to the end of this show. 
your time is the only finite resource you have and that you choose to share it with us is something that we never, ever take for granted. That's one take, Shay. One take.